Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I would really encourage people to um, look at the other models. And then when the time comes, when these, these issues are being discussed, don't discount yourself. You know, even if you've never been... Um, you know, if you've never spoken at a hearing before, for example, if you've never contacted your elected officials before, you will disorient people if you are able to organize a group that's never been civically active and say, we care about this issue and here is how we want to see it look. And we're the ones in charge um, because of the way that drug policy reform is unprecedented. There's a huge opportunity there. Social equity, international development, the war on drugs, there's so much to talk about on this one. And it's a transformed drug policy foundation takeover. So you're listening to Stop and Search on Scoobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST, in association with Transform Drug Policy Foundation. Here we go. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Thank you so much for joining us. And as I said, this is a special Transform Drug Policy Foundation takeover. So make sure you find them on Twitter, which is at Transform Drugs, and their website, transformdrugs.org. Thank you so much to James Nichols, the CEO of Transform, for putting this together and doing an amazing job of chairing this discussion as well. He put together a panel from North and South America on the many topics involving social equity and international development, but also how can you make sure that communities that have been impacted by current policies, how do they get a foothold in the emerging industries, in cannabis, in coca? How can we make sure that we have some restorative justice aspect to the war on drugs? So we've got Catherine Lederber, who is the director of the Andean Information Network. We've got Charlene Title, who is a commissioner at the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission. And we've got Sanyo Tree, who is a fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies and the director of its drug policy project. Let's hand over to James. Here we go. Hello and welcome to the first Transform Drug Policy podcast. My name's James Nichols, and I'm joined today by three fantastic guests who've been in London with Transform this week for a series of really inspiring events 
on developments in international drug policy and the question of how the reform of drug law can help promote social justice. Our guests are San Ho Tree, Shaleen Title and Catherine Lederber. Now, I assume quite a few of our listeners will know all three of you, but there'll be a few who won't as well. So can I first of all just ask you to introduce yourselves, say a bit about what you do and what your background is. Hello, I'm Catherine Lederber. I'm the director of the Andean Information Network based in Cochabamba, Bolivia. We work to study the impact of crop control and coca and development policy in Bolivia and Peru in a cooperative relationship with the University of Reading. My name is Jeline Title. I serve as one of five commissioners of the Cannabis Control Commission in Massachusetts, which is the agency tasked with implementing legal and regulated um, and medical marijuana. I also have served as a drug policy activist for the past 15 years or so. Uh, thanks, James, for having me on the podcast. Hello, my name is San Ho Tree. I'm a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies based in Washington, D.C. It's a progressive multi-issue think tank, and I've run the Drug Policy Project there uh, since 1998, looking at both the domestic and international war on drugs, as well as the supply and, and demand side of the equation. Great. Thank you. I mean, it's an amazing group of people to have in the, have in the room, and it's been fantastic to hang out with you all week at these, these events that we've been, we've been running. We maybe talk about those a little bit more later on. But I want to start with a really general question which is to ask each of you how you would characterise the state of uh, drug policy and the drug policy reform movement globally at this moment in time. So what do you think is happening in terms of positive change and what challenges are we facing? Uh, I think we're moving into two worlds, uh, much like the Cold War, except it's not ideology uh, and economics that divides the world, but rather um, the approach to drug policy. So you have um, more authoritarian style um, governments that are in favor of escalating the war on drugs and very often using that as a scapegoat for, uh, for other issues that they don't want to talk about or deal with. And on the other hand, you have other countries, uh, particularly in, in, in the Western Hemisphere and Europe, um, mo moving toward a more public health oriented uh, strategy and less of a criminal justice uh, reliant policies. And in Latin America, it's, there's also a mixed bag. You have some progressive change around cannabis in some countries, a recognition of Colombia, for example. Great progress in Mexico in some areas around uh, regulation and legal decisions for consumers, but still a great deal of pressure for coca and opium producers on the ground in most countries. Uh, my main area of focus, Bolivia, is a notable example with a successful model of regulation of the coca crop, which comes from a proposal from the, uh, the growers themselves, and international cooperation, which really looks at a rationing social justice model to make sure that subsistence is guaranteed and that these low-income farmers are really treated as full citizens. So we have advances, we have setbacks, and but we do have some models we can look at that are promising. Yeah, I'm sensing a shift um, in terms of people being fed up with um, punitive models. And I know in the, in the U.S., not only have we moved towards legal regulation of cannabis um, and discussions of decriminalization, but there's also a sense of empowerment and dignity for the people who are most affected by these policies. And on this trip uh, 
learning from people like Catherine, um, I get the sense that that's not just in the U.S., that's an international phenomenon as well. So would you say, I mean, in terms of this polarization, I mean, how how different do you think that actually is to, to previous eras? Do you think that there's a, a real sense of things dividing along lines? And what are those lines? When you're saying about this being post-ideological, so what do you think are the lines that are driving that that division between the more progressive countries and, and, the, and the places that are doubling down on, on drug policy? Well, I think it's important to remember the historical context of this so that the progressive countries now that are moving in a more liberalized direction were once tough drug warrior nations and played very similar types of politics in terms of um, uh, scapegoating uh, the drug issue to um, not um, really address a lot of underlying issues. Um, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful quote from a professor named Craig Reinerman at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And it's only three sentences long and I, I hesitate to read anything on, on radio, but um, he puts it so well. He says – he wrote, drugs are richly functional scapegoats. They provide elites with fig leaves to place over the unsightly social ills that are endemic to the social system over which they preside. They provide the public with a restricted aperture of attribution in which only the chemical boogeyman or lone deviant come into view and the social causes of a cornucopia of complex problems are out of the picture. And so we see now uh, many governments, particularly in countries like the Philippines, um, increasingly in Brazil, um, use the drug issue as a way of scapegoating all kinds of other problems in society, many of which are structural in nature that have much more to do with poverty and despair and alienation and saying uh, th this is the source of our problems. If we and, and what they're doing is setting up a modern-day pogrom, right, where you scapegoat all of these social ills onto one demographic group and say if you just got rid of these people, everything will be wine and roses again. We'll have the, you know, make America great again or make the Philippines great again or whatever. Uh, and this kind of an eliminationist philosophy really doesn't address the, the underlying problems that won't go away because you haven't addressed them. But they're very useful in uh, political mobilization. So President Duterte, even though he may have killed by some estimates up to 30,000 people in his nearly three years in office um, extrajudicially, he is still uh, incredibly popular in the Philippines. And so these kinds of simple solutions and, and simple scapegoating unfortunately work uh, in that it's uh, – slightly more difficult to message why that's a bad idea, um, that, that the solutions to a lot of these, these controversial policies are counterintuitive. So it's much easier to say, well, if, there's, uh, if drugs are bad, why not have a war on them? If these are bad people, why don't we eliminate them? Uh, rather than uh, looking at why uh, these things are happening and trying to address the root causes, which I think, again, are rooted in issues of poverty, despair, and alienation, as are so many societal problems. If you actually address those three uh, root problems, you solve you, – you begin to ameliorate a lot of societal problems down the line. So in other words, there is no substitute for building a healthy society and I think a lot of those regimes aren't interested in doing that. They want power, they want wealth and they want people to, to comply and, and behave. Um, so in that sense, I think uh, it, it could get far worse. Um, president Bolsonaro, who was elected uh, president of Brazil um, just last year, uh, has vowed in, during his campaign to kill as many as uh, 30,000 people, right? And in um, – in, in the Philippines, you know, President Duterte uh, famously said uh, inaccurately, he said, Hitler killed three million Jews. It was actually six million. And President Duterte said, well, I will be happy to kill three million drug users in, in my country. Yeah, I mean, that level of 
dehumanization in those in those regions is astonishing but i'm kind of interested to think and i think this came up in some of the discussions we were having earlier in the week is clearly drugs can provide an alibi for that dehumanization and an alibi for that level of stigmatization that othering of, of whole communities which then justifies um you know policies which can you know lead up to extrajudicial killings right through to mass incarceration whatever else we've seen but i'm interested to think i mean maybe uh, catherine and shaleen from your experience of where the policy has shifted to what extent if you remove that alibi in say the case of cannabis or in the case of of coca to what extent does that remove, I mean, how much is that able to remove the stigmatisation that, that's going on or how much does, it, does that just shift onto another, another domain, if that makes sense? I think there's a real temptation often to um, keep the stigmatization going even after policy reform. I think there's a temptation to divide people into um, good drug users and bad drug users. And it's really important for us to say... Um, Drug users are people and not only users, but um, immigrants who use drugs are people, sex workers who use drugs are people. And to resist the urge to keep the de- demonization going because that's where um, that's where inertia tends to take us. And it's very tempting and we have to be proactive against that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the, the issues that both San Ho and Chalene identify are key and crucial to understanding drug problems, who who the drug issue hits hardest, but also the drug enforcement issue. Because, you know, in Bolivia, what we saw is that the drug issue and the drug use issue was not the problem as much as the repressive U.S.-imposed policy. And so I think what I've been so impressed hearing about with the work that Shalene's doing with the uh, equity program and the and the way that the Bolivia program has been done is a regulation program is not just about regulating a substance, but it's also using the income from that program and using the program as a means to work to fight some of those societal ills. And that means citizenship for farmers or full citizenship for users, state services, basic services, funding in the region as equal citizens and equal partners in society. This is the kind of thing that I think you can't just have one isolated program. It all has to attack those issues at once. And that may seem overwhelming, but I think it's something that's urgent and it really pays off in the long run in making an initiative sustainable. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, it's been intriguing to see where you have policy reform taking place, the extent to which equity is built into that and being able to compare against different, I suppose they're kind of natural experiments, especially across the different states in, in, in North America. Shalene, I'm kind of interested to know from your experience in, in Massachusetts, you know, how that programme has worked out, what the thinking was behind it, what you think you've learned so far in terms of how policy, how those principles can be embedded in policy and what we can learn going forward. Well, it's it's very early um, in our program, but I'm trying to be really transparent about it and uh, encourage other jurisdictions, any jurisdiction that is thinking about legal regulation, um, especially of cannabis, to consider this as part of 
responsible regulation. So I think everyone is familiar with the idea that responsible regulation includes, you know, testing the product, making sure that there's security, making sure that um, there's responsible limitations, making sure that, you know, there's proper background checks, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also part of being responsible to acknowledge the harms that have been done by prohibition and proactively addressing them. So that's really the basis of uh, the idea of equity in cannabis. And the way that we have um, translated it in Massachusetts is to make sure that entire affected communities, um, not just people with drug convictions, that that gets a lot of attention because uh, to some people they haven't thought about that before. Um, people who have been in the drug trade that have skills, that have been targeted at disproportionate rates should be brought into the industry. But also, even if you have not had any kind of interaction um, with drugs, but you're part of a community that has been targeted by prohibition, you will have been affected as well. And so we want to reinvest into those communities. That's part of responsible regulation. I think what we've learned that I would want to share, um, and, and you hear this theme in Catherine's work as well, is that we don't need to um, talk at these communities and, and tell them what they need. We need to make multiple seats at the table in the public arena, in the behind-the-scenes arena, and invite them to design these programs themselves. So in Massachusetts, what we heard very strongly is that um, we didn't want to have a one-size-fits-all program. Um, we wanted to have a track for people at the entry or re-entry level that might be interested in the cannabis industry. We wanted to have an entrepreneurship track for people who are already operators that now want to um, transition to being legal, regulated, compliant, and how can we help create that pathway and move it along um, and... That also helps with the safe regulation uh, and the safe transition into um, a regulated market to recognize that it already exists and not pretend like we're building something from scratch because this has clearly been going on already for 100 years under prohibition. So those are the main lessons. And, and Catherine, in, in, in Bolivia, do you want to just describe for listeners how that system works and how those principles were, were embedded in, 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 in the way that the system works in Bolivia? Well, certainly. It's important to note that coca, the raw material for cocaine, has been grown in the Andes for centuries. In Bolivia and still in the other Andean countries, there's a very repressive forced eradication system. And what that means is that the coca leaf, which is the family source of economic livelihood, and we are these are families struggling for subsistence. I mean, often, you know, in talking in terms of stigma, at first they were characterized as narco coca growers. And then when 9-11 happened, they were narco terrorists. So that there is a way to target this, this struggling population. I mean, basically rip out their source of livelihood. They have nothing to eat. You may be given access to, say, citrus plants and grow an orange that will feed you in an eight-year period. There's never been any plan with these traditional top-down repressive models of what families are supposed to eat in the intervening eight years. And really, this is why the Bolivian model has been successful. It was based on years of protests for the parts of coca growers, sometimes violent protests, road blockades, a very long struggle. But a proposal that came from the top 
from the bottom up. It's a you know, grassroots proposal, something that Shalene was mentioning, and that was a proposal and a demand made on the government and designed by Coca Grows. And on this principle of equity, a distribution in this previously violent region of the coca crop, a very small amount, 1,600 square meters, um, which is uh, dedicated the sixth of a hectare for traditional use. And what this means is that every family in the affected regions has the same amount of coca. It's based on how much you would need for a monthly minimum wage for a family. So the core is no longer eliminating a crop, arresting people, none of these body count statistics, but you're looking at the sustainable development goals. How is it where do you start in terms of poverty? Where do you start in t- terms of nutrition? And you're looking at the welfare of the community increase using the coca crop, not as a criminal element, but as an anchor for the family's economic well-being. And this is the first time that families have been able to have that security and branch out and diversify their economies and run the risk of having other products. So we also see one of the issues that's very difficult for families that have been involved in illicit economies is no access to credit. You had a, a you have a valuable commodity now with a much higher price, the coca leaf, which it, when chewed or used in its traditional um, form is not a narcotic. It's a it's a mild stimulant with a history of centuries in the Andes, and this becomes a valuable legal commodity. And the licensing that's related to that then provides access to farmers for credit. So the whole vision is a social welfare approach and using the excuse to demonize these families as an anchor for their well-being and for their safety and for their legitimacy as full citizens in the society. And it's this is a program that's been going on since 2004 with support from the European Union, which is, you know, pretty mainstream support for a program that would appear outwardly radical, but we're seeing sustainable results and we're seeing that those families have better lives and that the conflict in that scenario has has been uh, largely eliminated. I think it's progress. I mean, it's interesting in, in both cases. Are you talking about the degrees to which policy needs to, you know, be designed in a way that that supports the people who've been previously most affected by drug prohibition? And I assume in both cases, there's a lot of support from those individuals and communities as well for the reform. Sanha, I don't know what your view on this is. Is what is in terms of. There's a lot of talk about drug policy reform globally now being driven by the burgeoning corporate interest. And we'll come back onto that, I think, a little later on. But what's your sense of the extent to which across communities affected currently by drug prohibition, what degree of support is there for for legal reform and how widespread is that? Yeah, the communities that are being targeted by these policies, both on the production side and the consumption side, uh, have been pushed to their limits. Uh, we have been trying to coerce them into uh, different behaviors uh, for decades now. And uh, it's like using a bigger stick to produce a different result, right? Um, but these are problems that are on the production side very often rooted in, in poverty and abandonment by the state. And so they subsist however they can. And very often illicit crops are the way to do that. Uh, and on the consumption side, uh, there's, of course, non-problematic recrea- recreational use, but there's also a lot of problematic drug use. And I think a lot of people are trying to deal with their, their pain of their, their existence and trying to find meaning in life. And 
it's it's a hard struggle in 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 any uh, era, but in particularly in in this one, people are somewhat adrift, um, not knowing uh, where they belong, how they fit in, um, and I think. You know, I think the, the more I look at this problem, and after traveling the world for, for two decades now, uh, looking at traditional societies, indigenous societies, as well as very modern societies, uh, what strikes me is that we are – there's an old African proverb that says the last one to recognize the existence of water is the fish because the fish mm-hmm. is swimming in it. And we are swimming in modernity and we think it's just normal. We look around us and we don't question it. We see a world of concrete, steel, petroleum, silicon, and we think this is the way things were meant to be. This is inevitable. None of this was inevitable. This is a, we got here because of a series of choices we made as a society or refused to make because we privatized and deregulated our system so that the market now decides for us. It's no longer our, our elders as, as, as indigenous cultures, traditional cultures might consult, but uh, the stock market and, and profit. Uh, and so we have constructed a world where uh, old traditional life ways and not to romanticize them. There are many problems in traditional societies that need a change. But they were stable. They, they were uh, reproducible over many generations. And they found ways to incorporate, for instance, uh, powerful psycho- psychoactive drugs. And they have no patterns, no histories of abuse. It's only when Westerners come in and take it out of their traditional context and turn it into party drugs, it becomes problematic. Uh, and they use things like uh, sacred control and use it in, 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 with ritual control rather than criminal justice control. Uh, we have a lot to learn from uh, those societies and not just about uh, drug policies. But uh, for instance, we just finished two days at, at uh, Windsor Castle at St. George's House, a wonderful institution that convened us to, 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 to talk about these issues and, and think more deeply. And I was struck by the, the antiquities at Windsor Castle, right? These wonderful old buildings dating back to you know, the 1300s and the 1400s. And it made me think about my own ancestry. Um, my father went back to China about a decade ago and went to our uh, ancestral village and took back a, a, a digital copy of our family scrolls, the family tree, so to speak. And uh, I knew it went back a few generations. I had no idea how far back it went. And it's not uncommon in Chinese uh, peasant society, Chinese society, uh, in, in Confucian society, to revere your ancestors. And even if you were illiterate, you got someone who was literate in the village to record these these things. So it turns out our family tree goes back, I think, twenty six generations. We think to the year six thirty seven. It's a different calendar system, but uh, roughly the, that that period. But when I think about the twenty four, twenty five generations that came before me. They all lived very similar lives. And again, not to romanticize it, to be uh, a rural peasant farmer in China, especially a woman uh, in that context, was, was an incredibly difficult life. But it was sustainable over many, many generations. And I think the last two generations, uh, particularly my generation, I alone have consumed probably more energy resources than all of my ancestors combined, simply because I fly a lot and live a modern lifestyle. The food that I eat comes from halfway around the world. I went to my local uh, grocery store. I bought a, a, a you know a pound of organic spinach, and it was a dollar sixty nine. And I looked at the label, and it said made in China. So we're now shipping spinach frozen across the world's largest ocean, across an entire continent, so I can save a few pennies uh, on this product. And how do you explain to your great, 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 great grandchildren yet unborn, sorry, we destroyed the planet and we ruined everything for you and the seas are rising, but you know, I saved a couple of pennies on that pound of spinach and the market said that was the right thing to do. Uh, 
We are not making decisions in any thoughtful way. We're creating a society that is spinning out of control, where people uh, don't have a sense of identity, community, belonging uh, that that they once had, and they're adrift uh, in many ways. And I think we're entering this this period of cultural fugue almost, and people are lashing out in in very extreme ways. I think, in, to some extent, Brexit is a manifestation of that. Uh, MAGA, the Trumpism phenomenon in the United States, um, Bolsonaro in Brazil. People want easy answers because they're adrift and they're afraid, and they don't know what the future brings for them. We've destroyed traditional livelihoods, life ways. Life ways are a very, very important thing. And to give you one example, I'm, I'm digressing from the drug issue for a moment, but this is very much drug related. But to give you one example, let's take the issue of free trade. In the mid-1990s, the United States, Mexico, and Canada uh, enacted a free trade agreement called NAFTA. And these technocrats in Ottawa, Washington, and Mexico City, uh, people who have uh, never gotten their shoes boots muddy, right? These, they walk marble hallways. And uh, they thought, oh, well, it would be much cheaper and much more efficient for uh, the U.S. to produce corn, uh, uh, you know, in, in an industrial scale and ship it to Mexico. That would free up their labor uh, to work in factories, and they could modernize and develop that way. And it sounds nice on paper until you hit the ground. And, uh, and you realize that corn, for instance, was something that was very central to uh, rural Mexican life uh, for, for countless generations. And uh, your, your, your culture, your rituals, your traditions, your songs, your festivals, your feasts uh, revolved around the agrarian planting cycle, right? And uh, patterns of kinship and, and family and all these things were, were rooted to, to that, that, that agrarian lifestyle. Suddenly, these technocrats uh, flood the country with cheap corn. They can no longer make a living. And they are literally torn asunder from the land and the life ways that kept them uh, stable for so many generations and thrust into a new reality of concrete, steel, petroleum, silicon that they don't know how to navigate, uh, have no experience with, and no one's there to teach them. And now you have a situation where both parents may be working in the maquiladoras, the factories. Um, who's raising the children? What songs do they teach them? What uh, values? What traditions? What? Uh, how do they navigate this new world? And the children may not respect them because they don't understand how to navigate this. And the children then, uh, if no one's teaching them, what are they? Who's who's filling their minds? What, what kind of values are they being inculcated with? And so many of them get, uh, you know, they start listening to narco corridos, the songs that that romanticize uh, the narcos, and the gangs uh, may approach them, and suddenly they can get respect with a gun, they can get social mobility with with cash for the first time. And we have, unfortunately, this inexhaustible reservoir of young people, um, not all of whom came from from these farms, but many did, uh, for whom uh, tomorrow is not going to be a better day. They don't see a future for themselves. And suddenly, they have this option to live as a king, relatively speaking, for a few short years and maybe burn out or even get killed, or live as a pauper for the next six or seven decades. Uh, So when I say there's no substitute for building a healthy society, that's what I mean. And so something as, as seemingly unrelated as a free trade agreement from the 1990s uh, can boomerang. And uh, now – and so th- these become in the Pentagon's uh, parlance. These people, many of these young people become the so-called trigger pullers for, for the narco wars in, in, in Mexico that have claimed by some estimates uh, – and no one really knows the numbers anymore. There's just far too many, possibly more than 200,000 lives in the past dozen years. So there's a high price to pay for this kind of uh, these kinds of policies. Mm. 
Uh, just to pick up on that, um, I too was thinking about my ancestors this week. Uh, it's, it's hard not to when you're in, you have this once in a lifetime opportunity uh, to meet with experts from around the world, you know, in this castle. And I was thinking about them. And I was thinking about how overwhelming everything is and this advice that my mom has given me, which is when you feel overwhelmed, just focus on what you can control and control what you can because there always will be something that you can control. And so to think about uh, drug policy reform, um, which I assume your listeners are interested in, I think there is this unique pocket of opportunity to have some control right now when we're in this shift. Because um, as Senho mentioned, you know, politicians as a whole have been focused on the punitive model, and it's been hard for them to learn and speak out about um, the, the ways that we're turning to, to smarter models now, and that leaves a vacuum. Um, in the U.S., it's, it's impossible in, in a lot of places for politicians to stick to that old model because it's just so clear. It's not what the people want. But they don't fully have uh, leadership or understanding of uh, what a sensible model would look like. And it leaves an opportunity for ordinary people to become thought leaders and political leaders. And we've seen that in a lot of states, especially because when this is so new, there is no um, corporate establishment yet. You know, they're, they're trying to create them, but there, there isn't one. You don't have to overcome, you know, some existing elite establishment machine. It's like all of a sudden everybody's kind of equal and you can come in with your own voice and you can, you know, read up on the models from, from other states, from other countries. You can talk to historians like Sanjo and you can come in with um, your own voice and it'll be taken seriously in my experience. At, at a minimum, it'll be taken ex- taken seriously. And so um, I would really encourage people to um, look at the other models. And then when the time comes, when these, these issues are being discussed, don't discount yourself. You know, even if you've never been, um, you know, if you've never spoken at a hearing before, for example, if you've never contacted your elected officials before, you will disorient people if you are able to organize a group that's never been civically active and say, we care about this issue and here is how we want to see it look and we're the ones in charge um, because of the way that drug policy reform is unprecedented, there's a huge opportunity there. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't agree more with both of my colleagues and I want to highlight that the success of a model in Bolivia is really built on this traditional Andean community structure. And so often, as San Ho said, the drug war imposes these counterintuitive uh, corrosive models. And so, you know, in, in the supply side and the repressive fight on coca production, all of the emphasis was on eroding these community union structures that are collective with collective decision making as, as, as the nucleus of drug trafficking when really the answer to reform and really the answer to addressing these issues, such as a large scale illicit crop production is strengthening community communities, taking advantage of those traditional ties, building on models to have strong community organizations that can mobilize, that can speak out, that can 
propose initiatives that can implement initiatives and that need to be there to evaluate initiatives. I mean, you know, the the, the key thing in Bolivia is using the strong community union structure. And then what you and and, you know, mind you, most of these people are not native Spanish speakers. They're native Quechua or Aymara speakers. They're indigenous peoples that have migrated to the from the highlands. And these community structures have persisted. And in the case of Bolivia, the repression has pulled them closer together. That's not always the case with the repressive repressive system. So how can we get people to bond together and use those networks? Because those networks help you implement a program, and those networks can be the key factor. You know, the coca monitoring program is run by coca growers in Bolivia who are now government officials. And it's one of the most beautiful things that I've ever seen now that we're working with Peruvian farmers and the Peruvian government is to have a meeting on uh, geo-referenced crop control and negotiation that was all carried out in Quechua, the native indigenous language, the language of the Incas, by both groups. It's bond of commonality. So I just really think that reinforces the visions that my colleagues have shared. You know, I'm reminded of the uh, elders of the Iroquois Confederation in North America, the native peoples from whom we Americans in part stole the idea of our constitution. Their elders, when they gathered and to make decisions, used to ask this very simple question. Uh, how would the decisions we make today affect the seventh generation down the line? Um, and I think that's a really good example of, of thoughtful, long-term thinking. I'm not saying we need to structure all of our decisions based on that, but we don't even think in terms of one generation anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, our politicians think in terms of two, four, six-year election cycles, and once they're elected, they think of re-election, so they don't want to disturb, you know, rock the boat. Uh, our corporations think in terms of quarterly numbers. Uh, if you don't make your numbers, your stock tanks, you get taken over, you no longer extend, you're, you're gone. And so whose job is it to ask these very basic questions about um, how, 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 how do we you know, uh, look after the interests of, of generations yet unborn? Who are their lobbyists? And when we've destroyed so many traditional lifeways without replacing them with anything meaningful or thoughtful, we're, we're literally making this up as we go along. And so modernity isn't some brilliant, well-thought-out uh, experiment. It, 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 we're, we're literally just, just winging it. Um, and so I think we need to recognize that we are the fish swimming in the water of modernity and acknowledge that it's part of this, this cultural fugue. This, this, uh, it's a foundational part of the problem, not just with drugs, but with, with uh, a lot of our, our conflicts and problems in our societies. Um, it's a foundational part of, of, of that. And I think um, the question for me is to what extent is this level of drug use that we have a rational – in terms of the problematic drug use, a rational and predictable response to a world gone mad basically? I mean, it's, it's it's an interesting thought. I suppose you could take Karl Marx's line that everything solid melts into air, and that is the condition of modernity. And in some respects, I suppose what you're saying there is, well, there's there's the reality that modernity creates these these um, alienations and this need to find some kind of an anchor somewhere in the chaos. And if that anchor is substance use, or if that anchor is you know consumption of whatever, you know that leads you in certain directions. But I'm really quite inspired by this idea that that, that chaos is also an, an, an opportunity as well, particularly the newness of the kind of collapse of the consensus globally around drug 
policy and that, that in there lies some kind of an opportunity for new forms of community engagement, new forms of vocalisation of people's experiences, new forms of political action. But I suppose, you know, the, being the devil's advocate here, you know, what a lot of people who are concerned about drug policy reform are saying is, well, it, in that kind of a space, you may have communities who can be empowered and organised to speak and to act, but you have corporates who are geared up pretty well who can just move in and, and th- that is kind of what's happening to a degree uh, particularly with cannabis we're starting to see the development of, of big corporates who are, who are very well versed in how to navigate their way through this space so I'm quite interested to, to, to just explore a little bit how you you in practical terms would think about ways in which well-designed policy in the context that you've all described can effectively push back against, I suppose, what is the, the kind of expected force of, of capital moving into that space? How can you design policy in such a way that, you, you know, that, can be, that can be resisted and those kind of community you know, um, act, action and engagement can be encouraged? You know, I I think it's interesting. Maybe the one good thing we can learn from the drug war and their focus on affected communities and lower income people who have been excluded is that maybe regulation initiatives need to focus on them too. I I think that the limitations in Massachusetts that Shalene's commission had put on licensing or a Bolivian system which guarantees an equitable production and sales mechanisms, which the producers are directly involved and can have some direct sales, that there are means to legislate a more equitable uh, distribution and an involvement in the regulated issue. Now, that really puts the burden on states. And you have people like Shalene who are really fighting for inclusion. But it really begins with a well-planned structure and lessons learned from the times when it wasn't done correctly. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that, um, I mean, my practical advice is to be 
armed with information and knowledge because there is no playbook. And I would actually push back on the idea that corporations are well-versed in how to navigate this particular um, complexity. They're well-versed in, in, in taking over, obviously, uh, different things. But this is so unpredictable. And that is the time for you to come in and say, I have that information. And not only that, I want you to have sufficient moral clarity and political courage. And if you don't have it, then I'm going the one who's going to run for office and be in control of this or, or become the regulator, et cetera, which is, a, I can tell you, a, a thing that you can aim for and actually do. Um, and I, this goes back to something that Sanjo said. I think when you're thinking about uh, regulation, you know, it can be tempting to just jump straight to the specifics. But you have to start with your principles and the problems that you're trying to solve and address and prioritize them because you won't be able to you won't be able to do everything. But if you start with, as we have with our commission, we want to ensure public health, we want to ensure public safety, and we want to ensure social justice, then every time you're trying to make a decision, you go back to those goals. And when something comes up like... Um, should we put limits on what a corporation should own? And should we invest very heavily in making sure the limits are enforced? Then the answers are very clear. I think, you know, what we've learned uh, through <laughs> centuries of capitalism, but also through industries that we have much experience with, like tobacco and, and with you, you with alcohol, uh, is that if a system can be gamed, it will be gamed. Right? And the purpose of, of, of competition under capitalism is not efficiency. It's monopoly, ultimately. You want to be the biggest player. You want to be able to set the terms of, uh, of, of commerce. Uh, and so they are going to, to push and, and try. And we, need, we, we have experience from these other sectors to know uh, some of the, the old playbook I and mean, certainly the developing new playbook uh, rules, but the old techniques. And we, if we know that are coming, we should be able to you know, lay the, 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 the tank traps for this corporate juggernaut that we know is coming down uh, the line. Also, however, I think we need to take into consideration, and I think people who think they're going to make a quick buck by investing in cannabis need to take into consideration um, the power, the economics of drug prohibition. And so, if you think because cannabis is valuable, you want to invest in it now, and when it, and, and when it legalizes, you'll make lots of money off of it. Think again. A lot of that value comes from prohibition. When we talk about drugs like cannabis, uh, methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, uh, these are essentially minimally processed agricultural and chemical commodities uh, that are easy to produce and they should cost pennies to, 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 to produce per dose. And yet we have a policy of prohibition, a modern day alchemy, if you will, that uh, turns this relatively worthless matter into things that are so priceless people will kill and, and die for these things. Uh, but once you remove prohibition, once you remove that, that risk premium to these traffickers, um, the value of these commodities begins to plummet. And then you're talking about you know, growing vegetable matter or, or some basic chemistry stuff. Um, and that a lot of that value can evaporate fairly quickly. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of the uh, California gold rush in the United States in the 1800s. And uh, you know, people went out west thinking, oh, I'm going to strike it rich prospecting for gold. And a lot of them never did. 
the people who really made the money were the people who were selling picks and shovels uh, and hotels and restaurants. Um, that was a guaranteed business model that, that worked. Um, similarly, in the cannabis space, um, if you're selling legal side of, of cannabis, uh, you know, accessories and that sort of thing, uh, that's a predictable bus- business model. If you're investing in the flower, the production of the, of the weed itself, um, that's a much more um, riskier experiment in my, in my opinion because the value of that can, can, can evaporate quite quickly. I just wanted to bring up the, the corporate uh, cautionary tale of the coca industry and that is that – international legislation about coca was totally manipulated by the Coca-Cola company through the United States government. It's important to note that most Andean peoples consume the coca leaf on a regular basis. But it's also important to note that many citizens in the UK and the United States and and throughout the world consume the coca leaf on a regular basis because it's part of the flavoring uh, formula for Coca-Cola. And so this otherness, this illegality that we've hoisted upon the farmers, that we've hoisted upon cocaine users is really something that is a key part of a corporate image. It's right there in the name. The Coca-Cola bottle is shaped uh, after the Coca-Cola seed pod. And I think it's really important to note that the Coca-Cola company through the U.S. successfully lobbied the United Nations 1961 single convention, the convention that stipulates that the coca leaf is a dangerous narcotic drug like heroin, like methamphetamine, although it's a mild stimulant without the negative effects of coffee. But there was one special dispensation as a flavoring agent for beverages. So even at the peak of the repressive forced eradications, the killings of protesting coca farmers by the uh, security forces when people were sending their adolescent daughters to work at brothels to sleep with members of the security forces to feed their family. The Coca-Cola company was still buying several hundred tons of coca leaf a year in an area where the U.S. had slated zero coca use. They're still buying it from the Peruvian government. It just highlights some of the key contradictions that are in our international governing bodies. And these are governing bodies that traditional countries and powerful countries argue cannot be changed, cannot be shaken. But these are not houses of cards. These are not fragile spider webs. And we see that countries like Bolivia have worked the system to allow coca use and sale for illicit. But we see that U.S. with recreational marijuana legislations in many states now violates the convention and that many countries are pushing and molding. And it's really time to update these frameworks to, to something that's more modern, that's something more humane and pragmatic. And it's very, very difficult to get countries, especially the United States, in spite of the hypocrisy, to stop using these conventions to batter countries like Bolivia when actually the U.S. is more in violation of the treaty. So there's this pending duty that we have to take these archaic uh, racist, discriminatory, old documents. So much has changed since 1961, and, and, and the regulatory system needs to change with it. That is a pending challenge for the drug reform movement. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that kind of point about where the international system is sitting at the moment, I mean, it goes back almost to the, the, what we were saying near the start, which is you're getting this polarization that, that is going on to a degree amongst certain, there's a kind of clumping of different 
groups of countries where you've got countries moving away from from the from the from the treaties and just kind of going it alone, you know, and just seeing how that works out. And then other states, Russia, China, doubling down certainly the certainly at the UN level, and the UN itself seeming to, you know, if you, the the reports published last March from the United Nations that were clearly, you know, UN agencies speaking with one voice in saying that human rights need to take precedence over the the enforcement of, of those conventions. To what extent do you feel as if that system, the UN treaty system, how durable do you think it is in the face of this, you know, it, its own internal contradictions and how much do you, th- how long do you think it would, it will survive for or what do you think is it, how this tussle is going to play out between these competing forces? You know, I'm, I'm often reminded of the uh, famous quote by Dr. Albert Schweitzer. Um, he said, the essence of being a humanitarian is never being willing to sacrifice a human being to a purpose or a political purpose in this case. And I think uh, that drug prohibition has increased and, and maximized all the potential harms from any of these substances in a way that um, there are, uh, many of our drug warriors and our, our politicians who, who want to you know, score points with this issue – are risking human lives. Um, they are, uh, for instance, I'll give you an example of, of drug checking or pill testing in, in uh, festivals and, and for people who use opioids and that sort of thing to make sure that people are getting the drugs they think they're getting and not getting some contaminated adulterants. They, uh, there are many politicians who wag their fingers and say, no, 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 this encourages drug use. You're sending the wrong message. Well, if you don't do this and you know that people are going to use these substances anyway, what you're essentially doing is condemning them to a randomized death penalty, that someone else's children should pay the price and perhaps die uh, to send a message to all the other people. And enough people have died and we realize that message hasn't gotten through and it isn't working. So we cannot continue to sacrifice people uh, in this manner. And people who claim to care about life um, should not be supporting these policies. So as Shirlene said earlier, we need to go back to our fundamental uh, values. Um, and I think valuing life and putting life at the, f- at the forefront of the, our decisions and our policymaking means that we come down with a completely different set of policy solutions rather than the war on drugs. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot there's a lot of value in UN treaty, but there is still a lot of division internally and a lot of weight of powerful countries in the UN system that don't necessarily have a humane approach. And so you see human rights treaties, you see important guarantees, you see an important vision from agencies like UNDP that that give contributions, but still a kind of monolithic fortress within the UN Office of drugs and crime and a rather inflexible system there. There are advances in crop monitoring with recognition of the Bolivian system. But it's still there's there are still these towers that need to be chipped away at and and you know kind of a hierarchy established. The narcotization of foreign policy or of international policy is something that's been uh, extremely damaging and has a very high human human cost. I think that San Ho's point of f- focusing on the humanity and prioritizing human rights issues and human welfare and the sustainable development goals, which are supposed to be the vertebrae of the UN system. This is something that needs to be reinforced, but there's still a scary, rigid block to chip away at. Yeah, I don't have the expertise to make predictions, so I'll leave that to my colleagues here. But I I feel compelled to note I'm thinking about um, the small group of 
gay activists in San Francisco in, I think, the early 90s who decided that they were going to fight for human rights in the case of medical cannabis to use for themselves and the people that they knew that were dying. And the local change that they were able to make and how that then became state change and then that then spread from medical to recreational and that then spread to the majority of states and that then spread to some limit on the hypocrisy that the United States could show internationally and the the shock wave that ended up coming from that one group fighting for their own human rights. Yeah, I think that's, it's a really powerful kind of image that actually, you know, you've got this kind of monolithic UN global system that people kind of know about, but, you know, how can you ever begin to even penetrate it? And then you've got very small localized grassroots action, which through a kind of domino or snowballing effect, you know, has grown and grown and grown and, 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 you know, changed that or started to really significantly chip away at that, that global system. I think that's a really inspiring kind of image of the way in which, you know, um, thinking differently about drug policy doesn't have to be something that's, that's done out there, you know, that, that, that happens at state or global level, but can happen at that very grassroots level. And that, you know, change can, change can move in that direction and has moved in that direction and is moving in that direction. Um, and I think capturing that is, 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 is a really important thing. Um, I was just going to kind of think about how, how things might, without expecting anyone to make kind of realistic predictions here necessarily, but kind of maybe idealistic predictions, um, is, to, is, to, is to end on a kind of, on a, kind of uh, a, a note, hopefully a positive note, to give you all the opportunity to think, well, OK, let's say, let's acknowledge that it's very difficult to make predictions in this fast-moving, somewhat chaotic world. I mean, you've been in the UK now for a week, and you, I mean, you talk about seven generations. I don't think politicians think about the next seven hours at the moment. Um, so give, giving that, you know, accepting that as the context in which we're all working, I'd be quite interested to know, you know, if you were to take your best-case scenario in, in the domains in, in, in which you work particularly, um, where would you, you know, in, in that kind of ideal, in ideal world, uh, think or imagine drug policy might stand in 10 years' time? You know, you know, what kind of environment might we have if things go right, if things go well, and if things went the way that you would like to see them go? Where would you like to see us be, or where do you think we might be at that stage? Uh, I don't know. I mean, our hope and one of the things we're working on in this collaborative project is looking at the Bolivian model and an equitable distribution subsistence-based licensing model. We're talking to other countries in the region about it. And we've made progress with uh, Peruvian coca growing groups, but also the Peruvian government that's not necessarily as linked to the coca growers, but see that they'd like to have results and they'd like to avoid a repressive response and they'd like to find a way out of this kind of crushing international pressure to eradicate and eradicate and eradicate. We've talked with the Jamaicans who, who, who like the model. The Paraguayans are interested. So what we're hoping is that this can be an infectious movement with a very variety of arguments, a humane approach, uh, assistance to the affected families, equity, but at the same time efficiency. And for those that aren't interested in the humane uh, impacts, at least cost effectiveness for states that, you know, it's, it's, it's much more sustainable and it's a less of a, a budget investment. So in a best case scenario, in, in my field, it would be kind of an expansion of this licensing equity system on the crop range that would allow farmers income and take them 
uh, out of the the rifle sights, literally and figuratively? You know, um, I work on a lot of depressing issues, but I'm actually an optimist uh, in many ways. And as a former historian, um, you know, my heroes are are not the civil rights workers in the United States of the 1960s. My heroes are the ones who were struggling in this in the 1940s and the 1950s when people said, you have no hope, you'll never see this change in your lifetime, and yet within a few short years it happened. The same with the women's suffrage movement. In the turn of the 19th century, no way, this is not going to happen anytime soon, and yet within a decade or two it did happen. And so looking at these social struggles, I think uh, the only thing that's inevitable is change itself, and sometimes it's even for the better. One thing I've noticed um, all the people I consider heroes have in common is when you ask them, uh, how did you end up here? They'll say, I don't think I'm anyone special. I'm just an ordinary person, but I saw what needed to be done, and I did it. And uh, I think we can all learn from that lesson. Um, In terms of where we'll be in 10 years, when I got off the plane, I was very much in my own little world of regulations. And if you would have asked me that, I would have said, well, I want to see, you know, such and such numbers in our equity program. I want to see, you know, these types of licenses, lower barriers to entry, you know, different uh, indicators like that, which are all still relevant. But after being here for a week and getting the opportunity to speak big picture uh, with such intelligent people, I'm thinking on a much bigger scale. Um, I was at a pub for the first time uh, talking to someone a, c- a couple of days ago about our respective experiences in our respective countries. And we were bonding over the fact that for the first time, when we think about our recent ancestors or just distant ancestors who were ready to go out into the streets and disrupt to the point that if there was if, they, if there were violence, they would die for what they believe in right now. And we're like, with what's going on in our countries, we can actually relate to that for the first time. And that's where we are. And when you think about drugs, you know, maybe it seems like some small part of it, but it's actually so central because people use drugs to escape their life circumstances. And governments use drugs as a war on people, not a war on drugs in any way. And when you fight that, you're fighting for fundamental equality. And that's where we are right now. Just, you know, when I first started in this field uh, about two decades ago, the uh, popular support for cannabis legalization in the United States was less than one-third of the general public. Today, it is about two-thirds. So it's more than doubled now. And uh, watching this kind of change happen gives me a great deal of hope for the future. We're on the right trajectory. Certainly, there have been ups and downs. After September 11th, for instance, the Bush administration tried to, you know, uh, conflate the war on drugs with the war on terror and creating this narco-terror boogeyman. And that pushed the pendulum back a little bit. But it has swung back significantly uh, in the direction of reform. And I think it's continuing to do so right now. I really think it's crucial to, to measure progress in millimeters. And we have to savor every millimeter that you advance because that's, a, that's, that's solid progress. And it doesn't mean that it's leaps and bounds and it doesn't uh, mean you solve the problem, but, but a satisfaction that you can somehow advance a microscopic bit. And it's never, it's never us that do it, but that you can facilitate or that you can accompany it or that you can learn from it. And I feel like I learned so much this week from such a dynamic group of people that that 
that this was an especially meaty millimeter for me, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm greatly appreciative of the opportunity to share this with all of you and the other colleagues. Well, listen, I mean, I'm massively grateful for, for, for you three for joining me here today, but also for all, you know the, your contribution to the discussions we've been having over the week here in London. I found it also inspiring and enlightening and encouraging and challenging and all of those things. So um, talking about kind of hope for the future, it certainly gives me a lot of hope for the future that there are people like yourselves and all the other people who've been involved in those discussions this week driving this driving this 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 movement forward because it feels like you know as long as people can be thinking in those ways and approaching it in those ways then we 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 have a good chance of moving into into a much better place so thank you all so much for joining me and um have a great rest of the week here in the uk thank you thank you thank you once more a huge thanks to james nichols the ceo of transform for doing an amazing job and chairing that discussion much needed as i'm sure you'll agree Let's push this conversation forward. Let's make sure that we're doing this more. And hopefully we'll do more collaborations with Transform Drug Policy Foundation too on this podcast. So thank you listening. Thank you for checking out all past episodes as well. And yeah, let's keep doing what we're doing. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.